If you are new with us tonight, perhaps you're just visiting friends and family, so on and so forth, we're glad you're here. We're going through the Gospel of John, and we are currently in chapter 5, but it seemed appropriate to fast forward to chapter 19 to talk about the resurrection, because that is why we are here tonight. We don't make any assumptions in this church. My hope is that you believe this, but I don't assume that you believe it. But just to set us off on the course for how important the resurrection is in Christianity, one writer calls it the linchpin on which the entire faith stands or falls. Tim Keller, who was a help to us tonight and most weeks, said it like this, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. And if he didn't rise from the dead, well, then why worry about anything that he said? So when it comes to playing high-stakes spirituality, we are gathered tonight at the table with the highest stakes of all. Eternity, where we will spend forever, rests upon whether or not what we see in this passage is true and whether or not we can trust it. And I want to put forward to you tonight, as someone who has deeply studied what all the world religions have to offer, someone who has spent basically the entirety of my life studying this book, the Bible, that what we have tonight is not a fable, it's not a myth, it's not an inspiring story meant to communicate some kind of esoteric spiritual truth, it is actual, factual history. And we can trust it. There will be at least four points that we have from our time together tonight. A couple of minor ones along the way, but four if you're a note taker you'll want to write down. And I think this will be an encouragement to all of us no matter where we find ourselves on our spiritual journey tonight. Let's dig in right here in verse 1. It says, Now on the first day of the week, that would be Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, the fact that this is Mary Magdalene is significant. What we find out about her from history, woman with a very sordid past. She had seven demons at one point. Obviously, it had a very difficult story for herself and all that would have been connected to her. And the fact that she is the first one here is not inconsequential. We'll say more about that in a bit, but I want you to pay attention to that even now. Also, let's ask this question, why was she there in the first place? Well, she had come to anoint the body of Jesus, and we know from the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that there were other women there as well, possibly at least four. Luke includes Joanna, Matthew mentions Mary Magdalene, and also Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mark tells us that Salome was also present. So there's this little band of faithful women that are there to honor the body of Jesus, so they think. But they encounter a specific problem when they show up that morning, and it's the kind of problem that you want to have. And that is our first point. That the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty Easter morning. So she shows up to honor a body that is missing in action. And believe it or not, Throughout all of history, most people agree that the tomb was empty. The disagreement comes in on why the tomb was empty. But it is within that 
disagreement that is the difference between heaven and hell. It's the difference between true and lasting peace and meaning and purpose in this life that can be found nowhere else other than the Lord Jesus. And the thought of why this tomb would be empty, Christianity, pretty obvious, we're going to stand right where historic Christianity has always stood, with the fact that Jesus came back to life. And if you're a thinking person and you have some other kind of conclusion, well, you have to justify all of the historical data to give a different result other than what historic Christianity has always held out. Keller says it like this, you have to come up with a historically plausible alternate explanation for a little group of frightened people exploding and changing the world when no other group did. You have to come up with an explanation of why hundreds and hundreds of people said they actually saw Jesus and why it changed their lives, and then they spent the rest of their lives preaching it and dying happily for it. Do you have an alternate explanation? Well, history has tried to come up with a few, one of which is that maybe the women went to the wrong tomb. Doesn't seem very plausible to me. You would think for as big a deal as it was for Jesus to die publicly and have made these proclamations that he was coming back, they could have probably found their way to where the spectacle would have been. Then on top of that, there was the idea that maybe the disciples came and stole the body of Jesus. Well, that's not possible because they would have had to defeat a Roman guard, which was a SEAL Team 6 kind of operation. And here these guys were fishermen and couldn't hardly get back and forth to where they bought groceries. And I just don't see them taking over that kind of military situation. Perhaps the worst one that history has offered is actually called the swoon theory, which is just a bad name if you ask me. And that was the idea that basically Jesus didn't really die but he just swooned. He just looked really out of it. And then after being beaten in what every historian would agree is one of the worst things that's ever happened, somehow he puts his body back together, gets up, rolls away a multi-ton stone, takes out these soldiers, and then sneaks away. So again, if Christianity's not true, then what's the alternate explanation? And I would say to you again, humbly but clearly, as someone who has deeply studied all the religions of the world and spent my life working in the Bible, this makes the most sense. This is factual reality. It's a story that's changed my life and countless others throughout history. And the stone was rolled away because God rolled it away. And the body was gone because Jesus had come back to life. Now look with me at verse 2. So she, being Mary Magdalene, ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved. Now let me just say this. I always say this when I think about this passage. I don't think John meant it this way, but I always chuckle when I read this account of the resurrection. It's a little bit cape in the wind to me. He always refers to himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. He does it several times here in the passage. And again, I, I'm sure there's probably something in the translation here that makes it look this way, but it does make me smile. And he said to them, and said to them, have, uh, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out, and the other disciple, they were going toward the tomb. 
Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter, cape, moment, and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Verse 6, then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in the place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Now there's a whole lot in that. But the thing I want to focus on tonight is actually our second principle, and that is that the linen cloths are actually more significant than you might think. In our day and age, usually when someone passes away, if there's a, a full typical funeral, you dress grandma or grandpa or whoever it was in their, their Sunday best, right? Put something special in there with them that might have meant something to them, but, but you really don't think a whole lot about what the person is buried in. But John includes this detail for us because we do need to think a lot about what Jesus was buried in. And here's the way I want to look at this. I see these grave claws as a clear strategic piece of evidence for the validity of the resurrection. Let me explain what I mean. If Jesus' body had been stolen, as some people would suggest, they wouldn't be there. Because if you're going to take a badly beaten and bloodied body, are you going to take the time to unwrap it and fold it up the way that it was? No, you're just going to grab that body and you're going to run away. But the fact that they are there and they are there the way that they are there, God has done something and John is telling us something. In addition... There would have been spices that would have been placed on this body to keep down the smell. And Jesus had been in there in this hot climate for three days. Just for the simple, let's make this possible to steal this body and get away, they would have wanted to keep those spices attached and all of the pieces intact so that they could get away with them. So again, John is telling us something with this seemingly not so significant detail through modern eyes. It's also interesting here in verse 8, the, the Greek word that John used to talk about his own experience there. In verse 8, it's the word arao. It means to see with understanding. And part of what he's getting at there is that he saw and understood what these grave clothes were saying and that Jesus truly had been resurrected. Now, if we go a little further with this, there's a man named Henry Latham. In his book, The Risen Master, he tells us a little bit about how these corpses were entombed at this time. He said that the dead were wrapped, but the face and the neck and the upper part of the shoulders were left bare. They, the corpses were typically wrapped with their arms folded cross-like on their torso, and their head was wrapped separately, and the cloth twirled around it like a turban. That's why we see over in Luke 7:15 when Jesus raised the widow of the son of Nain or the widow of Nain when he was being carried from the tomb the young man sat up and he was able to speak it's because of how this happened. And so again when we see what we have here and all that is 
in place with Jesus' body not there, it's telling us something important. Thoughts of a couple other people. C.K. Barrett says here, it seems that the body in some way disappeared from or passed through the cloths and left them lying as they were. John Stott, very trusted voice, says it was the body vaporized as it became something wonderful and new. That also gives insight into what we see later, the Gospel of John, where Jesus appears in the locked room, that even though he has a physical body, it operates differently than the one that we have. And so ours will be one day. So when you take all this together, the linen cloths and their placement as they were was not simply a throwaway piece of information. It is another piece of evidence where John says, look, ask questions, verify, and you will come to the conclusion that I came to, and that is that Jesus has been resurrected that he is indeed alive. But here's one other thing I love about the Bible. It's always keeping it real. Look back at verse 9. It says this, Or as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. If this were a made-up story, I think that John would have made himself and the other disciples look a little better. Because even though I was poking fun at him about what he said before, there's no poking fun at this. This doesn't put him in the best light. This doesn't put these other people in the best light. If this were made up, they would have written it to say and immediately believed and everything was awesome. And now here we are with this great story. But instead, he told the truth. And the truth was... <coughs> Even though they understood Jesus was resurrected, they did not connect all of the dots of the story of redemptive history. They did not understand that this showed all that Jesus said. They didn't understand all of the key texts. Things like Psalm 16. Eventually they figured it out, but they didn't see it all at this moment. So any thought that maybe they fabricated this story to make it all fit together just right is demunked by this fact of the Bible telling it the way it was. But let me make a little practical application of what we're talking about here. Isn't it good news that they didn't fully understand God's plan and it still didn't derail God's plan? See, we don't have to fully understand what God is doing in our lives in order to get on board with him. <coughs> I can tell you right now, there are multiple situations and scenarios in my own life that I do not understand exactly what God is doing. But that doesn't mean he's not doing something. Our questions do not trump his sovereign action. And some of us who are here tonight who are really trying to sort some things out, maybe nobody even knows about it. God knows. And you know. And my encouragement to you tonight is, if he saw that the resurrection was there and he still didn't put it all together, we're in pretty good company. And it didn't stop what God was doing. It doesn't even stop what God does with John. So you and I, we need to cooperate with the process that God has us in. 
We need to trust in Jesus as best we can. And on those days and in those moments when we can't figure it out and we fail, we just need to keep failing forward. We need to keep failing forward and going back to the risen Christ and asking and saying things like this, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Help me trust in you. Help me focus on the things that I do understand. And most of all, help me focus on the one that is doing this work, the risen Christ himself. He didn't give up on John. He didn't give up on Peter. We know what a mess he made. He's not going to give up on you either if you belong to him. Just be encouraged in that tonight, friends. And speaking of not giving up on people, look at this, verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and she wept, and she stood to look into the tomb. So clearly overcome with emotion here. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, you can almost feel the emotion, her trying to choke this out through her tears. They have taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. So at this moment for her, she doesn't even get it yet. She's not even had a verse 8 moment like John. She really is thinking Jesus has been stolen. I just want to see where his body is. I want to I honor him. But now let's dig down just a little bit on the fact that this is a woman as the first person that got to the tomb that that there were four women at least that were there first that morning. Friends, that tells us something about true Christianity and about the heart of God. Let me give it to you in a principle like this. True Christianity is not misogynistic or hateful to women. Now, are some Christians? Yes, they can be. They can be hateful to all kinds of people. It doesn't matter if they're a man or woman. But true Christianity is not. And the fact that they were there first and that God is about to specifically reveal himself to her and, and, and speak to her the way he does, it communicates something significant about what the God of the Bible believes about women at a time in history when they were basically treated like property and cattle. It's the exact same thing that he does over in the Christmas story. What was the first group that he brought the good news of the Christmas story to? It was the shepherds. They were considered the refuse of society. It, it was, they were the lowest of the low and considered so trust, untrustworthy that they could not give testimony in court of law. It's the same thing here with women. And children were treated even worse. And so the fact that God sovereignly allows this to play out the way that it does, that is a detail, kind of like the linen cloth, that is intended to communicate something to us. So if you have been hurt by Christians, I'm so sorry. But don't be confused with Christians and Christ. Look at what the God of the Bible is communicating. Look at his heart for women and children and disenfranchised people of all kind. And look at who he is and how he reveals himself. Friends, that's who we need to engage with. Is it hard to push back, push through some of the hurt that some folks have endured? You better believe it. 
But Christian truth is too important. Eternity is too long. The gospel is too real to not push through that pain and engage the love of God. And he's communicating that tonight. He's showing the truthfulness of the resurrection. He's showing the heart that he has for women and people that the culture has passed over at this time. And he has that same heart today. There's not a single one of us in this room that have fallen too far, that have sinned too much, that have made too much of a mess of our lives, that he can't help. The good news of the gospel is he'll take any of us. We just need to bring ourselves and our mess to him and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And that is only possible because Jesus is alive. And he wanted to make sure that she knew that. Look at verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Friends, listen, at this moment, Jesus could have thrown up his hands and said, are you kidding? I gave you two angels and you still don't. Okay, I'm done. Instead, he does the opposite. He makes sure that she knows that he hears. And he speaks to her and he asks her this question. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, still doesn't get it. Tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Now, we don't know exactly why she doesn't get it. There's different theories here. Nobody knows for sure because John doesn't tell us. Could be just the tears in her eyes. It was early in the morning, so on and so forth. Dark, no, no street light up there to illuminate Jesus. Could also be, obviously, he would have looked very different from essentially being beaten almost to death and then crucified. You look one way when that happens, and when you come back to life in a glorified body, you look different. That would be my guess. Could even be some sovereign thing here where she, she, he didn't uh, reveal so she could see it yet. We don't know. But what we do know is the same thing we saw before. He didn't give up on her. He gently, kindly made sure that she got it. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers, pay attention to that, and say to them, I am ascending to my, uh, to my Father and your Father and to my God and to your God. Ascending means going back to heaven. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he has said these things to her. Now let me point out just a couple of things here. Fourth and final point is this. After his resurrection... Jesus gave a word of comfort and a word of commissioning. And he does the same thing today. Well, let's talk about the comfort in this passage here. The comfort is that he specifically called her name. Friends, you know that he does that for each one of us. He doesn't just collectively save, he also individually saves. He communicates the gospel to you. 
not just as a general human, but as a specific person that he loves and cares for. If you're here tonight and you don't yet know him, you're not here by any accident. You're here because God has ordained for you to be here. You're here to hear his message of love and forgiveness and hope because God wants you to hear it. In his own way, he's saying your name, just like he said Mary's name. That should comfort us. That should convict us. That should compel us toward Christ. Now, beyond that, look specifically at what he says. You, you, can, you can see, I don't know if she reached out to him, and that's, that's why he said this. John doesn't tell us that. But this whole business here about not clinging to me, for I've not yet ascended, what is between the lines seems to be this great fear that she's lost him once and she's afraid she's about to lose him again. And she is trying to somehow lay hold of him verbally or physically so that he doesn't get away from her. And he, he basically says to her, listen, I understand, but I got stuff I got to do. And I've got to do this this way. And what he basically does is what author J.D. Greer says. He gives her an, an, uh, an alternate way. He doesn't lay it all out here, but I like the way he said it. He says this, the Holy Spirit inside of you is better than the Jesus beside you. That once he ascends, what does he do? He sends the comforter. He sends the one that can guide us into all truth. He sends the one that is portable, that goes with us everywhere that we go, that works miracles in our midst. He sends the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can be every place, all at once. Jesus could be one place at a time. So what might seem like bad news to Mary Magdalene this morning, I can't be with you, don't cling to me, was actually really good news. And friends, there's some encouragement for us in that because sometimes God gives us things that look and feel like lemons, but really under the surface, it's the spiritual lemonade that we need. And we might not understand it, and we wouldn't choose it, and we wouldn't wish for it, but sometimes it's what we have. And just like she had to trust him, we have to trust him. Now, one more piece of comfort here as well. I said, make mention of this. He says, go to my brothers. Now, up to this point, they have been called servants or friends, but never brothers. And part of what Jesus is doing here is he's talking about a new kind of relationship that his followers, which includes us, now have because of what he has done. Now, Jesus clearly, as the Son of God, has a unique relationship, right? But we are sons and daughters of God because of what Jesus has done. That's why regularly I point out to us the importance of being rooted in our identity in Christ. It is the safest, most secure, most indestructible identity that you can ever have in this world. You can lose your title at work. All of your family members can be killed and you lose that aspect of your identity. You can have some kind of 
horrifying accident and whatever your favorite hobby was, I was this, all those things can be taken away. But you know what you can't lose? Your identity in Christ. If Jesus has called you a brother or sister, if he's called you a son or a daughter, it's irrevocable. If you are in him, your identity is secure. That's great comfort. But Jesus always operates in a way that is uniquely Jesus. He's not just comforting. He's also commissioning. Look back at what he said there. He said, go to them and say to them this. So he sends her with a message. And friends, that's exactly what he does for us. That is exactly what he does for us and for every church that believes the true gospel. He doesn't say just get together and only think about one another. He's saying think about one another, love one another. There's a whole second half of the book about that kind of thing. But this message is too good to keep to yourself. You need to always be thinking beyond you. You need to always be praying for people to invite to church. You need to always be in relationships with people who give no concern about the gospel in hopes that they might. Because just like Jesus sent her to them, Jesus sends us to the world. The great commission that we see at the end of Matthew is called a great commission because it's just that. It's great and it's a commission. It's not an invitation simply to come and sit and soak, but to come and sit and soak and serve and go out so that he might save. Jesus always comforts and commissions. And we got to make sure we're here both. But let me tell you this as I close. The only reason why all of this matters and the only reason why Jesus was able to do any of this is because he literally, physically, actually came back to life this Easter morning. It was not a hologram. It was not a spiritual manifestation. It was the risen Christ. And if we, by the power of the Holy Spirit within us, lay hold of that truth, it changes everything. There was a preacher named R.W. Dale. He was a great, a great British congregational minister. He'd been a long distinguished leader at the time when he was serving. He was working on his Easter sermon and something happened. This is the quote. The thought of the risen Christ broke in upon me as if it never had before. Christ is alive, I said to myself. Alive. Then I paused. Alive. And then I paused again. Can it really be true? Living as really as I myself am living? I got up and I walked about repeating, Christ is living. He's living. It was to me a new discovery. I thought that all along I had believed it, but not until that moment did I feel for sure about it. 
I then said, my people shall know it. I shall preach about it again and again and again until they believe it as I believe it now. And that began a custom of him singing every Sunday morning an Easter hymn at his church. Friends, we believe it here at this church. But his point is well made. That when we understand the pervasive reality that Jesus is really alive, it changes everything. It makes every sunset a bit more precious. It makes every moment with the grandkids filled with even more joy. It makes every hard day a little bit easier because we know we're not alone. It makes every unexplainable difficulty somehow okay to push through because we know that Jesus knows what that's like. He knows what it's like to live between Friday and Sunday morning. One day he's going to be able to tell you about it in person because he's alive. But until that day comes, the Holy Spirit is inside of us because Jesus isn't beside of us. And the Holy Spirit is with us right now to help us and to guide us into all truth and to lift up Jesus through the preaching of his word and to call men and women and boys and girls who might not yet know Jesus to faith and repentance tonight. If you're here and you don't yet have a personal relationship with God in Christ, friends, today is the day to start one. And in just a moment when the rest of us take communion, you hold off, but friend, put your faith in Jesus. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe that only Jesus can save you, his perfect life, his substitute's death, his glorious resurrection, and confess your sins and commit your life to him. You do that, the risen Christ will save you. For those who've already made that turn, friend, where do you most need this hope where do you most need this good news? Where do you most need to look at your problem, your difficulty, your confusion, or even your joy and say, Jesus is alive? We're going to be okay. Friends, the resurrection and the reality of it changes everything. And my hope is tonight, my trust is tonight, that God is going to honor his word and he's going to change it, change us by it even now. Let's pray for that. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are so thankful to be here, to be reminded again of the greatness of who you are and what you've done and that we get to celebrate it. And that we don't just celebrate it just on Easter. We celebrate it every week. We celebrate it every day. But Lord, we're thankful for these special Sundays where we can focus primarily on this. So Lord, for those who don't yet know you, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. For those who do, I pray that they would be 
refreshed and renewed in their faith. That they would be reminded again that their life now and life to come is built on history, not on a whim. It's built on revelation, not speculation. I pray that you would press that down deep into our hearts, Lord. And I pray that you would continue to inhabit the praise of your, of your people in this time that we have together in this gathering. We pray all this in Jesus' mighty name.